Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. sisters and friends I I said last week when we brought chapter 10 to a close I said that upon the closing of chapter 10 that last paragraph there that also brought to a close Jesus's public ministry in the gospel according to John the ministry that began back in chapter 1 with the declaration of John the Baptist the one who came to witness about Christ the the voice in the wilderness the one who proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it began back then and then it spanned out all the way to chapter 10 with John the Baptist's testimony, the words and the declarations that he'd spoken when he was alive, now dead, but still remained in the hearts and in the minds of the people that are before our Lord who have come to the conclusion all that John has said is true. But it's a sad closing of the ministry or the public ministry of our Lord, isn't it? Because for the most part, apart from maybe a few, for the most part, the people of Israel, whether it's the religious establishment or the people in general, apart from a few, they had come to reject our Lord. We'd already seen that, that, that in the north, the Galileans had rejected our Lord wholesale back in John chapter 6. You remember, we saw that and we together meditated upon those words a couple of years back or maybe a year and a half back and then we see from chapter 7 all the way through the ending of chapter 10 Jesus is in Jerusalem declaring the the sublime truths of his teachings and his claims and the fact that the father had sent him for the sake of his sheep but even then that chapter comes to a close and the people reject him from the north of Israel down to the south, bringing to fruition what the Apostle John had told us already in the prologue of this book. You may remember the words. He said, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The long-awaited, the long-anticipated Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Son of God, comes and makes his visitation among the old covenant people of God. They're in Jerusalem and they reject his teachings, they reject his claims, they reject his testimony, and they reject his works, all of them. The last of his works, at least the last of which the gospel of the Apostle Paul and the gospel according to John records for us is the one that is in this chapter here. In John chapter 11, the raising of, from the dead of, of Lazarus, a spectacular, likely the most powerful and spectacular miracle that Jesus has performed to date. And they'll reject that also. Beloved, I, I want you to know that the rejection of our Lord was not so much 
was not so much just the rejection of the actual work. Because unlike the fake, false faith healers of our day, the miracles of our Lord couldn't be faked. They were the real deal. And the Jews could not refute them. They they just couldn't. They'd have to pluck their eyes out to refute them. They couldn't refute them. But what they were rejecting was something grander, something greater than the miracles in and of themselves. They were rejecting what these miracles were pointing towards, the essence and the meaning of the miracles for which Christ performed them among his people. You see, on many occasions, the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus performed were greater than the sign itself. And the Apostle John records seven for us in the fourth gospel. He handpicked seven of these miracles that Jesus had performed from thousands. You remember what he says at the end of the, of the book? That if all that Jesus had written are put in books, there's not enough books in the world that can handle the amount of miracles that Jesus has performed. And it's no coincidence that the apostle also doesn't call them miracles or wonders, but signs. Why does he call them signs? I've said it before. It's because as a sign points to something other than itself, these are signs that are pointing to something of the Messiah, of the Son of God, pointing to the salvation of God that comes through God's anointed one. These signs have far more value than just the wow factor. They're not a spectacle. They're not an exhibition. Jesus didn't go to perform shows. He was teaching in everything he did. And these signs were pointing to something spectacular. We've worked our way through the first six of those signs. We have one left. You may remember them. Remember back in chapter 2, the first of Jesus' miracles, when he turned the water into the absolute best wine. And then we go forward in John chapter 4 when Jesus produces a healing of the royal official's son. And Jesus was in Cana. The royal official's son was in Capernaum some 20 kilometers away. And just by thinking, the fever left the boy and he was healed. Then in John chapter 5, we have that wonderful healing of the invalid man of some almost four decades at the pool of Bethesda. You remember, Jesus makes a beeline straight to this man and says, pick up your mat and walk. What does he do? Pick up his mat and walk. It was on the Sabbath and he got himself in a lot of trouble. And then we know of the miracle that took place in the very next chapter in chapter 6. When Jesus, or the miracle that is titled, the feeding of the 5,000, you know the story. The miracle that was witnessed by more people than any other of Jesus' miracles, 5,000 men, maybe fifteen to 20,000 people, where Jesus takes five loaves, two fish, and multiplies them to give everyone their fill and 12 baskets left over. And then later on that evening, the disciples wanted to head back. They were on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias Sea, and they were on the eastern side. They wanted to make their way to, to, to west. They jump in a boat somewhere in that sea, halfway through maybe, the tumultuous waves and the wind starts to blow. And before they see it, they see their Savior walking, defying all gravity, defying all nature, and walking upon the water towards them in the pitch darkness. And before you know it, he transports them, the boats and the disciples to the other side, just like that. Just like that. And then, of course, we have that miracle that we that we looked at last. The miracle of Jesus opening the eyes 
of a man born blind. A creation miracle. Man's never seen and Jesus opens his eyes. And now what we have before us is no doubt the most spectacular, the most powerful of miracles that Jesus performs in his earthly ministry. That is when he heals, or not heals, my apologies, he raises Lazarus from the dead. I've endeavoured, I've laboured in the last four plus years as we've worked our way through the gospel according to John to spend time in showing us what those miracles, what those signs really mean. Why they were performed by our Lord. What is the essence? What were they saying about Him and about the Father and about why He has come to this earth? Why He was sent to this earth? And let me tell you, sometimes it's more difficult than other times to find the essence of why they were performed. But there are times where our Lord is so gracious And he does all the heavy lifting for us. Where our Lord Jesus Christ, he does the exegesis for me. And it's just so clear. In particular, those times where Jesus opens his mouth and he declares the words that begin with, I am. I am. When he fed the 5,000, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Oh, that's what the bread was symbolic of when he fed the thousands. It's not about this. It's about the life that Jesus gives in here. Or, or, or when we looked at the, the, the miracle that the blind man who was born blind, who had his eyes opened, Just previous to that, in in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Thank you, Lord. I can explain that miracle, that sign, from your own words. And now here in John chapter 11, in the raising of Lazarus, before that takes place, in verse 25, I hope you saw it, in your Bibles, in John chapter 10, the Lord again, he gives us, he does the exegesis for us, and he tells us what this miracle is actually about when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Beloved, there is no doubt that the seventh sign in the gospel, according to John, is the most significant yet. You see, for the most part, the, the Jews rejected all that our Lord did and said because of willful ignorance, because of unbelief. They rejected all the signs that they had, they had witnessed they didn't understand the essence, the meaning of the signs. They didn't understand that much. And they, were, they had hearts filled with pride. They may have thought that those signs don't apply to me. I'm a man of means. Maybe some of them, all of them, the Pharisees were men of means. And so were the Sadducees. We don't need, we don't need that bread that you multiplied on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're okay. We have pantries full of bread. Or they might have thought, we didn't drink any of that wine, but we have plenty anyway, so you can keep it, thank you, Lord. 
My son's okay. He's healthy. I don't, I don't need healing for my son like the royal official's son. Maybe. Maybe some of us are thinking, how do those miracles apply to me even now? But let me tell you something. That type of ignorance stops here in John chapter 11 on the seventh miracle. On the seventh sign that our Lord performs. You know why? Because death is now in view. And the last time I checked, the long arm of death doesn't discriminate against anyone. Every man, every woman, every child who has ever walked the face of this earth will one day experience death if the Lord tarries. So if someone sits back and thinks, what is going on in the content of of John chapter 11 doesn't apply to me, I would have to say, think again. It does. It does. Why? Because of these words. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's your Romans chapter 5 verse 12. You see, death is inevitable, beloved. Death is going to reach everyone. It is guaranteed and death will have the last say. I'm going to say that again. Death will have the last say. Unless, unless there is one who has the power to conquer over death. Unless there is one who has the power to reverse the the plight and the calamity brought in Adam. That brought all his posterity into and plunged them into into death and, and chaos because of his Sin. And Adam is the federal head. He's the father of all creation. All human beings fit on him. And therefore, if you are in Adam, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, then if you're in Adam, then death has reached you. You cannot escape it. The only way death does not have the last say is if there is one who can conquer death. Once and for all, put death to death. And then take some out of Adam whose plight and their destiny is death and bring them into himself to enjoy the life that he lives and never to die again. That's it. That is the only way. Otherwise, as it stands in Adam, death will have its last say. I am the resurrection and the life. That's a brief overview very brief. We won't get into the essence this week of what this chapter is really about. We'll unpack those words and more, God willing, over the next few months as we endeavor to work our way through verse at a time. We'll do more than one verse, but verse at a time per per sermon um, as we work through over the next few months. But my intention this evening is for us to meditate and to unpack the first six verses that are before us. Because in them, beloved, our glorious truths for the sheep, 
truths that you and I should anchor our hearts upon. They're beautiful. And I hope that the Lord will reveal that to our hearts as we work our way through them this evening. So let's begin from verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now there, there are three characters now mentioned for us. We have Lazarus, we have Mary, and we have Martha. And in fact, this is actually the first time, according to the Gospel of John, that these, any one of these siblings are even mentioned. And that's an interesting thing to say, because if you noticed, when you read verse 2, it's almost like the Apostle John is speaking of Mary, the one who anointed, the feet, anointed our Lord with expensive oil. It's almost like he's speaking of her as though we should know about her, as though, as though his readers should, should be familiar with this Mary. Right? Now the thing is, this is the interesting thing, Mary is not mentioned in the Gospel according to John until the next chapter. In fact, chapter 12. So what's happening here? I can't be definitive, but I think what the, what the Apostle John is doing is he's presupposing at least some familiarity with the, with the synoptic Gospels. You see, the Gospel according to John is the fourth, of, uh, the fourth to, be, to be written. Some two or three decades from the Synoptic Gospels. So we have 20 or 30 years. The, the, the Synoptic Gospels were being surrounded there in, 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 in throughout the, the Asia Minor and throughout Jerusalem and sorry, throughout Israel and so forth. So it's very likely that the, that the Apostle John has, has his readers in mind and thinking, look, the, the story of Mary has gone all around the place and surely they would know when I say Mary, the one anointed by or the one who anointed our Lord, without getting to her, which is going to take place in the next chapter. Now, the interesting thing is that the story of Mary is actually written in the synoptics, but not all of them. It's written in Matthew and in also in Mark, in both, in both those. But in both those Gospels, her name, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, if you're thinking, her name is actually not even mentioned. We're only told a woman anoints the Lord with expensive oil. Here, the, the Apostle John gives us a, a name to put to the woman. Now, if you remember when she did anoint our Lord's body with, with the expensive oil, there was a bit of outrage. It's pretty expensive stuff. But our Lord said, it's a beautiful thing that she does. And in fact, she will be remembered everywhere along or over the earth wherever the gospel is being preached. And so she is remembered even here by the Apostle, by the apostle John. Now you might think if she's mentioned in Matthew and in Mark, you might be thinking, isn't she mentioned in Luke? What about Luke 7? You know, that the sinful woman of the city in Luke Chapter 7, is that not Mary? Well, some commentators think it is. I think there's far too many differences for that to be Mary. So no, only Mark and only Matthew. But Luke does mention the sisters. Not in chapter 7, but in chapter 10. And, and there we get a little bit of background understanding of Mary 
and Martha, I should say Martha and Mary, because it's likely that Martha is the older of the two sisters. I think it'll help us to get a bit of background as we plan or as we build foundations to work through the, the 11th chapter here, which, which has them in the story all the way through, then it would be good for us to get a little bit of background to, to see what is going on and a little bit of an understanding of these sisters, both Martha and Mary. Now, it's actually very difficult to be able to organize chronologically what takes place within the gospel according to Luke because it's not all chronologically written. But from what I can gather, I do believe that the contents or the narrative that takes place in Luke chapter 10 actually takes place before what we have here in John chapter 11. So just, just keep that in mind. Back there in Luke chapter 11, my apologies, Luke chapter 10, Jesus comes to a place called Bethany. Now, last week I explained this Bethany, and it's told for us in the text, is on the eastern side of Jerusalem, some two to three kilometers away over the Mount of Olives. Now, our text says about two miles away. It's a pretty good estimate, but the, the actual wording in the original is it's spoken in stadia, which is around 2,600, 2,000. 700 meters. That's the Bethany. So it's not the Bethany where Jesus is right now up to the north, about 20 kilometers south of the Sea of Galilee, which is about 80, 90 kilometers away from this venue. And that's as the, the crow flies. Now, this is the Bethany that is very close to Jerusalem. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, Jesus is approaching, or through the text, he's going to come back to a place that was pretty hostile to him, only a few k's away. Now he's 80 or 90 k's away, but he'll come back to a place near Jerusalem. And it, when he left last, it was because of the the Jews who wanted to stone him. So what happens in this text is that Martha, she invites Jesus into her home and Jesus stays there with Martha and Mary. And as Jesus always, wherever he goes, he's always amassing a large crowd, a large following who want to hear him preach. And so you have Martha who is seemingly the, the older sister and the younger sister is Mary and she's going about rushing and being distracted and being hospitable and, and serving all these people while, while her sister Mary sits at the feet of Christ absorbing all that comes out of his mouth. There's a level of frustration from Martha and then she complains she complains to Jesus. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. You have the Messiah in your house. You have the Son of God in your house. And, and you come and complain like that. You, you know what that tells me? It tells me that her relationship with the Lord was quite intimate. He was a friend, that he was loved by her and she loved him deeply. No matter what you think about that complaint, would you, would you complain if the Lord was to walk in here right now? I think this speaks of the intimate closeness and the friendship that they had. And, and, that's, and I think that's, that's good for us to keep in our mind because Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Mary and he loved Martha as well. And our Lord had also, I want you, this is a bit of a side note, but the Lord had an inner circle. You would know about this. You, you, the disciples were 12, but there was three disciples that were really intimately close with the Lord. This is one, the Apostle John, his brother James. And who's the third? 
Peter. We know the Lord had an intimate relationship with him. He loved all his disciples. He loved them dearly. He laid his life down for all his disciples except. But he had an intimate inner circle relationship with those three. And so he loved his people. But he had an intimate loving relationship with Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And the reason why I say that is this. Don't, we are called to love. We are called to love our brothers and sisters. We are called to love people in the world. We are called to love and to be prepared to lay down our lives for them, not to discriminate in our love. But there are some times in our relationships that we, we have close, intimate relationships with some and not so close with the others. Don't feel guilty about that, but examine your heart. Jesus wasn't sinning whilst he did this. But you and I need to examine our hearts to make sure that's not because of resentment or bitterness towards another or any other reason. But as long as there's true love and we don't distinct, we're not, we, we're not, there's no distinction in our love for our brothers and our sisters. But there may be an inner circle. Christ had that. Anyway, Martha, upon complaining with the Lord or to the Lord, she must have expected a response, don't you think? I, I think when she, when she complained, oh Lord, look what I'm doing. I'm slaving away, serving and being hospitable. And look at her, she's just sitting there. I think Martha might have thought that Jesus would look over to Mary and say, Mary, Mary, you lazy girl, you. Look at your sister. Go give her a hand. She's there slaving away and working away, being hospitable and all. Go give her a hand, Mary. Go on, be a good girl. That's not what she gets. Nope. Nope. That's not actually what she gets. <laughs> instead, instead, our Lord opens his mouth and he admonishes Martha, saying, lovingly, of course, graciously, of course, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see, what Jesus is not doing here is he's not opposing the hospitality of Martha. He's not opposing the fact that she's out there serving people. He's not doing that at all. In fact, Jesus commends hospitality. Jesus, in fact, commands that his sheep, that his people are hospitable, even to those they don't know. Jesus came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve, he says to his disciples. No, no. Jesus had a servant heart. He had a servant heart. But it seems to me that Martha might have been lacking the servant's heart. She'd become anxious and troubled, we're told, because her service had become a burden. And that's precisely because she hadn't prioritized the things that she should have prioritized. Namely, sitting at the feet of Christ drinking in all his teachings and experiencing his intimate love. I think that's what she 
That's what she lacked. You see, it's only at the feet of Christ. It's only there when you're receiving from his truths, when you're learning from his word, when you're communing with him, spending time with him. It's there that the Lord Jesus Christ cultivates within us a servant heart. It's only then that he empowers us to now be able to actually go into the world and serve. And, and the service is not begrudging, it's not burdensome, it's full of joy. When she complained about her sister, she was complaining because she needed help. There's no hint in that complaint that she wanted to be freed up in order to sit at the feet of Christ. It's only there that the Lord will create in us a heart that is disposed to loving him and to loving others. It's only there when we fill up from Christ that we're able to actually serve and be hospitable as he would have us serve and be hospitable with joyful motivations. Mary had the good portion, Jesus says. And that is necessary. Don't give, don't give away the very best thing you have in your life, even for a good thing. There are many good things you can do with your time. Many good things, even required and instructed for us in Scripture. But don't think you can be empowered to do any of them unless you have the better portion, unless you've received from Christ, unless you've sat at his feet, unless you've drunken in what he has to say, unless you've truly communed with him and, and, and enabled him to, to produce in you the heart that he requires so that when you go out into the world, you serve the world as he would have you serve the world. Beloved and brothers and sisters simply said, prioritize your time with Christ. Back to John chapter 11. But now I think sometime later after that event had taken place, Lazarus is deathly ill. And Martha and Mary are concerned to reach Jesus with a message. What is that message? Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. I absolutely love the simplicity of that message. I don't know about you, but it, but it speaks volumes, A, eh, of the intimate relationship that, that the sisters had with, with Christ. You know what I mean? The closer you are with someone or to someone, the more you know that person's heart, the more you're attuned to that person's mind, the more intimate you are in relationship with that person. Husbands and wives, you would know this if you've been married for a while and your hearts are being united. You only need to... Use a few words to get your message across. Actually, sometimes you don't even have to say words. Just with a single look and your partner, your wife or your husband will know exactly what you're trying to say. Oh, we've got some smiles. Good, there's some affirmation. That's so true. But also, because what seems to be a complete confidence in the Lord the message is very brief 
And to me, it connotes complete confidence in the Lord because very little needs to be said. Lord, him whom you love is ill. No pleading. No begging. No, Jesus, you must leave everything and come. Jesus, the one you love is ill. You, you Leave everything and come. No trying to drag you. You tell the messenger, you drag Jesus and you bring him along. There was none of that. We saw some of that back in John chapter 4 when the royal official's son came to Jesus. He had a sense of desperation that his son is to be healed. But I don't see any of that here. There's no details of the severity of the sickness of, of Lazarus. And he was severe because only a couple of days later he's dead. It's a simple message. A simple message with two statements of fact. Lord, we know this much. You love our brother. You've manifested to us and proven to us that you love our brother. This much we know you love our brother. And Jesus, the one you love. He's ill. I can imagine Mary and Martha looking at each other and saying, Is that enough? Is that enough? And then they look upon each other, I imagine, and say, Oh, yeah, it is. This is Jesus who we're talking about. He will do what is right. He will always do what is right. If anyone is aware of the power of Christ, the power he has to heal, it was the sisters. They were attuned to the ministry of Christ. They knew his ability. They knew how he'd gone around and healing every type of disease and casting out demons. They knew no matter what was going on in their brother who, who was deathly ill at that time, that Jesus would surely be able to restore him. What a blessing it is for the sheep to know resolutely who their good shepherd is. I believe due to the, the simplicity and, and the contents of the message that the sister's disposition towards our Lord was, in fact, one of love. But, beloved, that disposition will soon be tested. Their disposition was one of complete confidence, but that disposition will soon be tested. But it seems to me that's where they stand, at least when they sent the message. If they had any concerns, it would be simply this, I imagine, that the messenger gets to Jesus on time. In their mind, if he gets there on time, I'm sure it will be okay. And then you have the next words, the words of our Lord. So when he heard, that's Jesus, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The all-knowing Son of God immediately is able in these words to discern and to know that this sickness will not lead to death. That the final outcome for Lazarus will not be Abiding death. That's the inference. That the, that, that the final result, when all is said and done, Lazarus will not be dead. In other words, he will continue to be able to enjoy his life there in Bethany with his sisters. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. Lazarus' days will continue. But little did those who heard him know that Lazarus, in order for him to continue to live, he first must die. He must. He must. He must. There is no two ways about it. God is sovereign. He has decreed it. Jesus is working according to the perfect agenda of God. And there's another reason where he says here, because the ultimate purpose, according to our Lord, is that the glory of God be revealed through him. And that, beloved, is the greatest good. The glory of God. There is no greater good than the revelation of the glory of God. It is the highest end. It is the most worthy cause that God is to be glorified. All the intricate web of details that needed to take place and, and fall into place for this day to occur, all the parties involved were under the sovereign decree of an almighty God who brought it to this point in order to glorify himself, which is the greatest ends. It is the greatest worthy ends. That God will be seen as all glorious. That his beauty and his splendor will be seen by all. That his light will be revealed as the one who is glorious. As the one who is glorious. And that is a theme of our Lord, isn't it? Through, as we work our way through the gospel according to John, hasn't it, been, hasn't it been the theme on our Lord's lips that he's concerned above all for the glory of God? You remember back in John chapter 9 that when the... The, the, the blind man, man who was born blind was, was made to see. You remember, you remember the text? You remember what was written? When, when, Jesus, when the chapter begins, chapter 9, you have these words. Chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. As he, that is Christ, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, I hope this is regathering some of your memories. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he, must be, or that he may be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man had sinned, nor his parents. You're thinking about it wrongly. Then he goes on to say, but the works of God may be displayed in him. That the mighty hand of God will be displayed in him. That the light of God will, will shine in and through what is going to take place with the Son of God. This man, possibly 20 or, or 30, maybe even 40 years of age, was born not seeing a single thing. The light of day had never penetrated through his pupils ever. He'd never seen any light. Imagine all the web of details that went through or those planned in his life. The preservation of his life in, in spite of all the dangers blind people go through in order for Jesus to bring him to this point right now to the disciples and said all that was accomplished, all that was done by the sovereign hand of God so that this moment will take place that I'm walking down the streets of Jerusalem and my eyes will lock on his. His eyes cannot lock on mine. And when I do... I know that I'm going to open his eyes and the glory of God will be revealed. The glory of God will be revealed. That the splendor of God, that his magnificence, that his absolute beauty will be seen for what it is. No greater purpose. What transpires over, 
over the next few days in the text that is before us here in John chapter 11, our Lord Jesus Christ is saying preeminently, it is so that the glory of God would be revealed. That's the highest end. There's nothing above that. There's nothing more worthy than for the God of the universe to be, to be glorified. And in the text, he's glorified in his Son. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. glory of God is put on equal footing as the glory of the Son of God, as though there is no distinction from the lips of our Lord. The beauty and the goodness of the Father and the beauty of the goodness of the Son, they're both worthy of the same glory, the same essence of glory. One in being, no mean man can speak like this. Beloved, what man can speak like this? What man can say in the same sentence that I'm worthy of the same glory as the Father? What, what, what man can get away with those sort of words? Here's the thing. Jesus is a man, but he's not a mere man. We've said it over and again at this pulpit, and he's no mere man. In fact, the gospel according to John begins with a prologue, and as we work our way through the gospel, the prologue is explaining what takes place. And in the very first words there we have, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, what the word was? The word was God. And then chapter, in verse 14, we have, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, uh, as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. No more grace apart from Christ. There's no other truth apart from Christ. He's full. You can't add to it. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe has been fully made known through the Son and is glorified in and through His Son. Jesus has already said these words to the Jews back in John chapter 5. He said, everyone must give Him the same glory as owing to the Father. Then He goes on to say, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Son is concerned with the glory of God. That's his, that's his preeminent concern. That's His ultimate end, that the Father is glorified. And the Father is concerned that the Son is glorified because there's no greater good, no greater purpose. If you want to be like Christ, brothers and sisters, then that ought to be our hearts also. That ought to be what we believe. It ought to be what we desire, the glory of God. The highest end for you and I, for my whole existence, ought to be His glory. Beloved, I, I hear your prayers. You hear mine. And we're always saying that, Lord, be, be glorified in my life. Lord, be glorified in my life. And if I ask you, do you mean that prayer? Is it sincere? I'm sure you are. Let me rephrase that question. Would you still desire above all the glory of God if it costs you dearly? Let me, let me give you another question. Would you desire above all 
the revelation of the glory of God. If he is best glorified, only if you lose everything. Mary and Martha, they trusted the Lord. Otherwise, they wouldn't have sent Christ for Christ. But little did they know that the one they love, the one who loves them, will willfully decide to hold back his healing hand with the ultimate purpose to glorify God. He purposefully, intentionally allows for the ones he loves to endure such horrific pain, gut-wrenching pain, dark days, beloved, sorrow, grief. Because it was necessary for the greatest end. The glory of God in the Son of Man, in the Son of God. They thought suffering, no doubt they thought suffering would end. Once, once the word received, came to Jesus' ears, surely this, our suffering will end. Just when Jesus finds out, surely it'll end. He'll drop everything. He'll rush to the one he loves. Surely. Isn't that what you and I would do, beloved? Why, he could have even healed our brother from where he was. With a word. No, with a thought. He could heal Lazarus. Their beloved brother became sicker and sicker. Where is Jesus? And, he, and before their very eyes, he, he lost his power, his energy. And, and, and the grip of this sickness brought him under and under until the point of death. Where is Jesus? Where is our Lord, maybe? Is that what they're asking? Sure it was, if the text is anything to go by. They buried him. It's customary to bury in the Middle East on the same day or within 24 hours. Where's Jesus? Where is he? Day one. Day two. Day three. Where is Jesus? Why isn't he, why isn't he here, right here, right now? Why isn't he here with us? They know the messenger got the message across. Well, back in verse 5, we're told. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he, hear this, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Realize verse 3 tells us that Jesus, the, the message, the one whom you love, is an acknowledgement that Jesus loves Lazarus. Here in verse 5, we're told by divine commentary that the love of Christ was not only on Lazarus, but it was on Lazarus, on his sister Martha, and on his sister Mary. They were all the recipients of the love of Christ. And yet he waits two whole days. Can you imagine what was going on in the hearts and in the minds of those poor people? whole days and it's not until Jesus knows 
divinely knows, and we'll get to that, that Lazarus is dead before he makes a move on the three to four day journey down to Bethany to be with these girls. And the reason he gives is for the glory of God to be revealed. Yes, beloved, yes. The greatest good is the glory of God. But can you deny that the ones who are suffering or for the ones who are suffering and enduring this horrific pain and agony, can you deny that that may be a hard pill for them to swallow? For the brokenhearted to receive those words at this point, they don't know that Jesus delayed his coming back, but they will. To know that the one who had power to heal him chose willfully not to. When Jesus approaches the city, not quite in Bethany, a little way off, Martha hears of it. And what's her first words to the Lord? She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 21. Mary receives word from Martha, our our rabbi, our teacher, he's here as well. And she races out to him. And she her first words in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They know. He could have brought, he could have brought him back from that illness. Almost a sound of despair in their voice, right? And then in verse 37, what are those who are around them, the Jews who are sitting there consoling the girls in their home, what are they thinking? I'll tell you what they're thinking. We're told what they're thinking. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What's the common denominator between the thoughts of man and the thoughts of God? They can be worlds apart, beloved. Absolutely worlds removed apart because what man desires is instant gratification let's face it we don't like pain we want ease we don't like affliction we don't like tribulation we don't like persecution we don't like sickness we don't like any of these things we want our suffering to end and we wanted it to end yesterday but our Lord our precious God has other plans for us. Listen, brothers and sisters, please listen to what I'm about to say. When it's all said and done, no matter the suffering, no matter the affliction, no matter the tribulation, no matter the pain, no matter the anguish of the heart, when it's all said and done, the glory of God is the greatest end despite... All the difficulty means. He is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. His glory is enough. Okay. But he's so gracious. He's so gracious to his sheep, we see in the text. And even in this grace, he is further glorified. That although the ultimate and the preeminent purpose, goal, objective of our Lord for all that he does is rooted in the revelation of the glory of God, his own glory 
for the sheep, beloved, for the sheep, for those who know Christ, for those who have been united by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, for the sheep who have heard his voice and have followed after him, for his sheep, not the goats, not the wolves, but only, only his sheep that he knows and he loves, runs a, a constant, unchanging reality that is parallel to the glory of God. It runs along the preeminence of the glory of God. What is it that runs along the highest good, the ultimate ends, which is the glory of God? What runs unfailing and unbroken is the love that God has for his sheep. And the purpose he has in his heart to always do them good. This is why, beloved, it's so important that we give the text before us special attention, that we take detail, that we examine every word that is written. Because in the smallest word that is in those six verses is such grace. And I'm talking about the word that begins, verse 6. The word in your Bibles, if you have the ESV, the word so. The word so, it can faithfully can be faithfully translated when, therefore, or therefore, when. Or it can even be translated because of this. You see, that word so, it, it links the purpose in verse 5 with the action in verse 6. So let me read to you those two verses from verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus because of this. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Yes, the glory of God is to be revealed. But running simultaneously alongside that sublime truth is the love of God made manifest to the sheep of Christ. The love that he has for his sheep and an innate desire to do only what is for their own good. You see, when Jesus remained back two whole days, it was because of his love for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, not in spite of it. How could this be? Well, the Apostle Paul explains it in another way, in a verse that you and I have come to love and even memorize. You know what I'm talking. Let's start with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You 
see, our Lord's concern for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, even his disciples as we'll come to see. His concern and his love for them compelled him also to delay because it would be for their own good. To strengthen their faith. To strengthen their resolve in their saviour. To strengthen their understanding of his word. To hold true to his promises. To grow them in patience and in love for one another and for their God. To make them, in a word, more like Jesus Christ. To empower them to do these things. To empower them to grow. To empower them to obedience. You see, you see, our Lord has eternity in his mind. And sometimes we value the here and the now, wanting instant gratification. The Lord is thinking, no, it is better for you to suffer for a while. It is better for you to endure for a while. It is better for you to encounter trials and tribulations and difficulty and go through those difficult times, whether it's sickness, heartache, whatever it is. It is better that you go through these things for a while, not because I haven't the power to take you away or to make them all dissolve. I do, Jesus would say. He's the omnipotent God. He can do as he pleases, when he pleases. But because he loves his own, Because he loves his sheep, he will do always what is for their own good. And that's simultaneously the greatest objective, the greatest purpose, the greatest cause, the greatest end, which is for the glory of God. The glory of God goes hand in hand with the heart of God that loves his sheep, that loves his people and intends only to do what is good to his people. No contradictions. You will never find biblically a contradiction. The ultimate ends is the glory of God. But also when all is said and done, we will be able to say, everything you did to me was good. Everything was rooted in your love. I may not be able to see it. I may have complained. I may have grumbled. I may have demanded sometimes in my prayers, Lord, forgive me. Now I can see it is all for my own good. Praise be to him in eternity. We'll see it. But now he does it and allows us to go through the suffering so that we don't have to wait till eternity to see it. But we can see it now. And it strengthens our faith faith now. And right now in this world, we walk in accordance, in obedience to him, walking in his light, absorbing his words and enjoying our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He he wants you to see it now, beloved. He wants me to see these things right now. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans 8, he experienced this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to what the the Apostle writes. Because the question I really wanted to ask is, is it possible that the Lord will take us to breaking point? The answer is yes. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself indeed. You know, we despaired of life itself indeed. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. The great Apostle, filled with the Spirit, the words of Christ. He was taught by Christ, sent out to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. 
Oh, how blessed is this man. Yes. He came to the point where he despaired of even life. Sentence of death. But, hear this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Eyes were taken off self. Taken off looking upon self and my circumstances and saying, pity me. No, that's not the attitude God wants us to have. But rather, to take our eyes off self, to see him in all his glory and say, I've come to end of self. I have no strength. I have no power. I feel like dying. You're my strength. If I'm going to make it another day, it will be by the strength and the grace of my God and only by his grace. Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such pet deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Suffering. It's, it's not a very nice term, suffering. Pain, affliction, anguish, hurt, disaster, tribulation affliction these are not nice words but brothers and sisters please hear me when i say this the health of prosperity gospel is heresy the, any christianity that says name it and claim it that is heresy we must as authentic bible believing jesus trusting christians have a theology of suffering because it's in that suffering that he produces something from us it's in that suffering, as the Apostle Paul says, our eyes are taken off self. We recognize, I've got no strength. I've got nothing in and of myself. I've got no power. I can't even go one step forward. Lord, I'm in your hands. And then we see him work. We place our hope, our faith in him. Our love for him grows. Our love for one another grows. And this is the other effect also. That the value of the things of this world begin to diminish. Because then our eyes are fixed upon eternity. No longer are we planning and, and fixing our hearts on the things that are going to perish. Like Jesus said to the Galileans, do not pursue the, the food that, that perishes, but pursue the food that, that endures into eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. Then we, we, we start to desire the things that Jesus gives us because we're no longer looking at the things that we can attain for ourselves. Suffering. You must have a theology of Suffering but not meaningless suffering. The type that is rooted in the love of Christ, which is always purposed for our own good. This is how the Lord puts self to death and empowers us to suffer, not arbitrarily, but he fashions every trial, every tribulation, every affliction. Nothing comes your way, Christian. You're his sheep. Nothing comes your way unless it comes through the good shepherd. Nothing Nothing. We may pray sometimes and feel like the Lord's not listening. We may pray for reprieve and it doesn't come. We may pray for healing and it doesn't come. We may pray for, for the pain and the affliction and the sickness and the infirmity to be taken away, but, but it doesn't come. We pray for relief sometimes and it doesn't come. Don't think it's bad luck. No such thing as bad luck. But his hand is in it. You need to
need to know that his hand is in it. We, make, we pray and make our requests to the Lord. We don't, we don't demand. But we come before him as the Heavenly Father and we plead with him. We plead with him. And we align ourselves, beloved, with his good, loving will for our lives. We would like to see reprieve, but if it doesn't come, we ask, give us strength. Give us strength. Strengthen our faith to walk in this time of seeming darkness, time of sorrow, time of pain. Give us, give us joyful hearts to receive from your hand whatever comes from your hand, joyfully and not begrudgingly. Beloved brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is this, don't limit your prayers when you pray before the Lord and you are going through difficulty, knowing that he has fashioned that and he has allowed it upon your life because he means the ultimate ends, which is the conformity into the image of Christ. Nothing is arbitrary. You're not, you're not left for chance. The great shepherd, the good shepherd is with you always. Nothing comes your way apart from his, his will, none of it at all. But let's broaden our vocabulary when we think of praying let's not limit our answers to a yes praise god and no i've said it before because the lord answers sometimes with a yes and then the other times he answers with a grow 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 you need to grow in patience i'm allowing you to go through this difficult time you're not where I want you to be and nor should you be satisfied beloved brothers and sisters where you are right now nor should I that doesn't mean we romanticize suffering let's not do that that's silly no we don't but we say Lord you are the one with the tool chest and you know how to use those tools Lord whatever tool you use to make me more like Christ Give me the heart to receive joyfully. And one of those tools is suffering, pain, and affliction. He'll make us into his own image. I'm almost done, beloved. I know I've taken longer than what you probably anticipated. I'm almost done. And beloved brothers and sisters, we spoke about the Apostle Paul knowing suffering. But how can we go beyond our Lord and our Saviour? who also endured suffering. He's not, he's not telling you to do something he hasn't done first. He knows pain. He knows grief. He knows betrayal. He knows deception. He knows what it is to be treated unfairly. He knows what a mock trial is, going from one hand to the other of evil men who don't deserve to touch a, a hair on his head that has gone from one place to another, and rather than all these people who call themselves judges standing over him should be on their knees worshipping him. Not, their lips are not even worthy of touching his feet to kiss. And yet he accepted all of that. Why? For the ultimate glory of the Father and for the love of his sheep. He knows suffering. He's not indifferent to your suffering or mine. Never, ever, ever, ever allow your hearts to think that where I am going, no one has gone. No one understands me. No one understands the darkness I'm in right now. There is one who does understand. And he understands it better than you do. Better than me. That's Jesus. He's familiar 
with suffering. He's, in, he's not indifferent to your suffering. He's, he's not. The book of Hebrews tells us, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what? Through what he suffered. Our Lord knows suffering. He knows what it is to be led to the cross. To be hung on that cross. To hang there practically naked in front of all the looking eyes to look at him with scorn to deride him to spit upon him to blaspheme his holy name and he was worthy of none of it and he bore the wrath of God upon that cross he suffered words can't describe words cannot describe and what we saw upon that cross is the ultimate ends the absolute glory of God revealed like it's never been revealed through his son and parallel was running his absolute love for his sheep his absolute love for his people. For these sisters, Mary and Martha, that suffering was four days. Four days. Four excruciating, gut wrenching days. But then, but then there was joy, there was gladness. For some of you may have been longer at some times in your life. And it may be that we will endure suffering when time comes. I could almost guarantee it. And it may go for months, maybe years. And it may be that in this lifetime you don't see the effects. It may be that the Lord says, this is your lot until the day you fold over and die. But when all is said and done when all is said and done unimaginable glory in the presence of our God forever no suffering no tears no sickness and no death ever again to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you you are so gracious to us. You are so wonderful. You are so glorious.